Hello everyone, welcome to Tennis with an Accent. This is Saqib hosting the show once again and today uh, we have a guest who has been writing about tennis for the last 7-8 years, currently a contributor uh, for The New Yorker. Uh, let me bring in Louisa Thomas. Uh, how are you? Good, thank you for having me. Oh, this, is, this is a big day again. Anytime uh, someone of your caliber walks into our show, I mean literally speaking, uh, this is good uh, and we can enhance the dialogue. Uh, especially with your you know your tennis coverage has been uh, pretty you know pretty phenomenal and the way you write I'm a fan and some of my team is excited we have a, a lot of requests already for questions so let me just start from my question and my understanding so uh, when I when I read your work even your your tweets are very you know very simple to the point okay I wrote about Nick Kyrgios and then there's the article I like that style so just some background I know you come across as a fan so Tell us about how this uh, writing about tennis started for you. Um, well, I really like to play tennis, um, which is the short answer. Um, I A few years ago, I had a book about um, four brothers in World War I coming out um, shortly. And I was uh, anxious and avoiding, you know, thinking about what comes next. So I was playing a lot of tennis. And a friend of mine... Um, asked me to write a little bit about the U.S. Open um, for a website. And I thought, well, that sounds like fun and a good way to distract myself. And um, it turned out that it was a lot of fun and that, you know, that it sort of un- sort of unlocked something in me or something in my voice. Um, and I started doing it more and more. And that became, you know, one of my main uh, preoccupations. So um, I've never really done, I've never really been a beat tennis writer. I've never followed the tour um you know i do go to tournaments tournaments when i can but i'm not in the newsroom you know day in day out i generally have a kind of more distant perspective um but i've really kind of appreciated um you know the chance to to write about tennis as much as i do hmm. so it's, it's kind of uh, given anyone who's following your writing and your uh you on twitter or your work knows that tennis is part of the space you write about uh, a lot of other things as well so, like you said, you are not covering tennis on on a weekly basis, but uh, that still leaves you know me and a lot of other uh, readers quite interested because you you are still one of those writers who writes about the match itself. Uh, there are a lot of writers out there, on, especially in this day and age of uh, tennis Twitter, where information is breaking. Uh, it's, break, it's pretty much breaking news by the second, so it's pretty refreshing right. to get a match analysis or a match, uh, you know, write up by a writer. So why you choose that kind of style? Uh, again, there's and and you can also add another question here. How do you go about choosing your story when you're at an event like Miami or US Open? So um, I'm lucky in a lot of ways. First of all, um, I don't have the requirement to break news. Um, I don't have even the requirement to really report the score or tell people who won. Um, I sort of go in assuming that the reader has either some sense of um, the outcome and I'm sort of trying to contribute something else or um, the reader is not so invested in finding out the score. If they wanted to know the score, they go to, you know, tennis.com or ESPN.com or um, something like that. So I'm sort of free to, to do something else with um, whatever's at hand. I find it, um, you know, part of what I'm doing is sort of working through my own experience of, of watching and thinking about some of these players and some of the trajectories they're on and what they're doing and what they're not doing. And, and um, you know, I always want to have some sort of, like, 
I don't even want to call it an angle, um, but some sort of thought that I'm working through. And that it may not even be immediately apparent what that thought is, but at the end of the day, I, I hope that, you know, you you come to appreciate someone or something or um, see something in a little bit of a different angle or a different perspective than you did before you started reading the story. So that brings me to, you know, follow-up, which was uh, always uh, in my mind when, you know, I was preparing my notes, how I'm going to go about this conversation. So what kind of a space does uh, tennis occupy in the grand scheme of uh, a publication like The New Yorker? Do you uh, have tiny. Do you have... <laughs> Oh, tiny. Okay, but so your story writing, so does it have to be Federer, Osaka, Kyrgios, uh, Williams, or you can go and write about a no-name if that story, I mean, what kind of liberties you have as far as putting content out there? Um, the answer is both a lot and a little. Um, and the reason is that we actually have kind of an unusual amount of tennis coverage because I really do like to write about it. And one of my colleagues, um, Jerry Marzetti, also writes about tennis. So, um we we probably have more tennis coverage than we do say like baseball coverage or something, even though tennis is a comparatively or even football or something, even though tennis is a comparatively smaller sport in the American sports landscape. Um, but so we sort of have to be able to justify, you know, having all these stories, which means usually it, it's around the slams or around maybe Indian Wells, one of the bigger tournaments. It's let we're less likely, like probably not going to, be writing three articles on Cincinnati or something, even though I would like to, you know, maybe, um, you know, it's really kind of like, it's easy to be able to say, I want to write about the Wimbledon final, or I want to be, be writing about Wimbledon in general, harder to say, oh yeah, I really want to write about Nottingham. Um, however, if there's a, a person that, you know, I think maybe New Yorker readers haven't come across very much, or it's a name they might want to keep in mind to know, or, or it, that person contributed something differently to the tennis landscape or, or does something a little bit differently. I certainly can justify it. It doesn't have to be Federer. I mean, I have written about Federer like a million times, but um, you know, I also have written about um, lots of other kind of less known players. Um, and I think that that's, you know, it's just a question of timing and, and, you know, making sure that you're, you're sort of checking your boxes and not kind of, um, overloading the <laughs> website, but at the same time, you know, adding something new. So just uh, to enhance this, uh, when you were at, say, these tournaments, uh, US Open, you said, and then even Indian Wells, so to add context to your story, do you believe in your style of uh, writing or reporting, do you need a player's coat after a match, or that's something uh, you can... Certainly do not need, um, but it can contribute. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely don't feel like you need to hear from the player, um, especially because again, like there are a lot of stories that are sort of using all the same quotes. Um, sometimes those quotes are really good and they really add, like there's a story. I mean, I remember writing about Venus Williams during the Australian open last year, not this past year. And she spoke really beautifully and eloquently about competing. And, you know, that was a quote that was widely reported. Um, obviously they give press conferences. So this stuff isn't exclusive to anyone. Um, but I thought it really, illuminated what I was trying to say. So absolutely, I'm going to use that in that situation. But, you know, if I'm writing, I don't think I used any interviews when I was writing about the um, Indian Wells final, for instance. Mm. Um, you know, I think I think it just is, is context dependent. Um, I definitely don't feel like it's a newspaper style story where 
you need to you need to have that that voice to give it sort of some sort of authenticity. And then uh, your pieces are, I'm sure there's there's not as frequent as a website or a newspaper. So even when you're the U.S. Open, uh, are you also conscious that you have to put a piece out there? So there are no spoiler alerts. The match would have been in the books maybe by a few days at least, and then someone will be reading it. So you have yeah. to make it with that perspective as well, I, I guess. Yeah, um, timeliness is sort of a funny thing. Like I feel like we can generally come in behind things. We don't have to sort of be you know on top of things right away but at the same time yeah you do have to keep that in mind hmm. and uh, one more question on you know your readership uh, this is coming from Murta Tunga who also contributes at our site and he wanted to know uh, a writer of your uh, caliber when you are you know writing these assignments or these stories at these tournaments uh, are you aware of uh, any metrics that support you know what your readership is like and are you catering no. Something like that. I'm well, so I'm so lucky that I do not have to pay attention to page views and you know what what um, who's reading what. Um, I do don't have a reader in mind. Um, my general reader is um, myself or one of my friends. Um, I want to sort of make sure that I'm I'm not writing for someone who's looking for the score, but um, I'm writing for someone who sort of wants. Um, to think about things a little differently. And so so my general idea is that I want to just communicate, you know, a new thought at the end of the day. Mm. Okay, so let's keep the conversation moving forward. I believe you were at Miami recently. That's when we last spoke and we tried to make plans for this podcast. So I was. Um, I wasn't actually, I was interviewing someone. I wasn't actually, I didn't, I, get, I got to see only one match <laughs> pretty much um, in full before I took off in a little bit of, of a few others. But um I was there for about 24 hours. Okay. And that's uh, your latest piece. Uh, uh, did, you, did you write any any more besides Naomi Osaka? I know there's a piece that just came out maybe two weeks ago. Um, that was my last one to come out, yes. I mean, I, I mean, the way the magazines work, I wrote that in, in you know, January. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, I've written since then, but, but since that was published, um, no, I think that was my latest one. I, I did write off the um, Indian Wells final, um, and I will be writing a piece um, from my trip to Miami, but it's it's not out yet. That will be before okay. the French Open. Um, so let's take the conversation back to the U.S. Open. You you know, there was a very eventful, some may say, the women's final when Carlos Ramos had some sort of a say, and you sure. wrote about that match. And then uh, just I want to tie in, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, gender inequality just in society. And I'm not, you know, gonna going to go there, but tennis is another sport. You know, that that imbalance was highlighted during that match. And then now Muffet McGraw comes out and talks about you know the role, uh, the lack of role models in not only in sports but in general society for women. So, do you see tennis as that place where uh, that kind of imbalance uh, exists, or that can is, is already a place where that kind of imbalance can be some sort of rectified? Um, I think that imbalance exists across society. Um, certainly, not only in tennis, um, but but tennis is not free of it. Um, I think that tennis is is actually been one of the arenas in which women have made a lot of great strides and it's been actually a driver for the rest of not just American society but global society when it comes to things like women's rights and things like that you know obviously Billie Jean King is an icon in this arena um and you know the women who followed her um to this day I think a lot of the top women you know consider themselves feminists not just Americans but um which is pretty cool um 
I do think that um, there's a, a long way to go, though. I mean, obviously, a lot of players are highlighting, um, you know, equal pay is is, is a, a real thing at the slams. It's not um, at other tournaments. And um, leadership, these questions of leadership. And, you know, it's it's unclear what, you know, is happening with the women in, in regards to these kind of team events, you know, how, how women's tennis is going to fit into that landscape. And, um, you know, there are a lot of questions always and a lot of work to be done. But, um you know, obviously, I think this is something that's a lot of on a lot of women's mind, and there and there's some really kind of beautiful, powerful examples of um, women in tennis who are, are sort of taking the lead. And um, you know, it's it's great. It's really great to see. And of course, you want to see more of it. So, do you also see this imbalance carries over to the administrative room, say even the media room? Uh, this kind of uh, where we can definitely bridge this gap. Um, I think that, I mean, I know a lot of really great women are covering tennis. Um, I mean, I think it's everywhere, you know, so it's not, I don't want to say there's any places free of it. Um, but, um, I think there are a lot of, of really great, um, uh, women writing about tennis in the media room. Um, I think that, you know, the, um, WTA takes its, um, role as advocate for, for women in sport and women in society very seriously. Um, but again, you know, certainly this is a topic of some contention in the ATP and among the players there. So it'd be great to see some of the, especially in Andy Murray's, uh, um, absence to see some, some of the men stepping up and, and, you know, really kind of being, giving voice. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's still an issue, but um, and it's something that we shouldn't forget about. Mm-hmm. But um, it's it is heartening to see um, what has been done and what what can be done. Yeah, you mentioned Andy Murray, and he's uh, you know we wish him well, and hopefully he can reco- recover from his uh, hip <laughs> surgery and come back and play tennis. But uh, his association with Amelie Moresmo was also seen as uh, what uh, Muffy McGraw might say, you know. <laughs> What do you take on that? I mean, while it's good and we should embrace that, but uh, should we make those stories as, as like, oh, he's a pioneer, he's the first one to do it? But I don't think that's why he did it. But a lot oh, of time, sure. a lot of time, I, the story gets uh, the real plots get, get gets lost when this kind of an appointment takes place. For sure, and I, I think that there needs to be some sort of balance. Um, and I think he, one of the great things about him was that he wasn't like, oh, look at me, I'm so great, I, I did this great thing for women he was very much like this should not be a big deal this is not a big deal (laughs) you know um and i feel a responsibility to stand up and and you know celebrate um you know amelie and her success with him and everything but like at the same time i think that he was great about sort of saying guys like you know i I didn't cure cancer here (laughs) you know this is just something very normal should be very normal it's not normal and it's a problem that it's not normal um you know and i do think that it's great that Lucas Pui um, went ahead and hired. I mean, something that McGraw said um, that I think was really spot on is that this stuff has to become, you know, we're we're tired of celebrating first. Um, you know, the stuff needs to become normal. We need to be talking about the seventh time. And um, so I think it's really great that Amelie, you know, wasn't a, that her experience with Andy wasn't a one-off. It was obviously, you know, quite successful. And, and um, you know, someone else saw that, she could help him and, and took that leap. And again, said like, this isn't a big deal. It is a big deal, but it's, you know, that shows how kind of misguided the way we view things, these things are, because obviously like Amelie did incredible things with Lucas's game and, and 
we should um, we should really kind of notice that story too. So it's not it's not always about the first. Sometimes it's about the second and the third, and, and we need to give credit where credit is due. But credit is often like widely spread. <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. So that brings me to a question which is kind of connected: uh, the on-court coaching in the WTA. Some, you know, everybody has an opinion. This is one of those topics, and uh, the ATP tour has kind of even the players have dismissed this as a large scale. And I was in the press room in Miami last year, and uh, uh, there, there was a lot of talk going around this topic and how different players were asked. So, what's your take on that when people say, "Oh, because uh, in WTA, you, you know, the sport is not." Or how, how do I say it? Because there are people who think it's a WTA uh, mandate only to have a coach on court because it's a one-on-one sport. And uh, I even asked this to Venus Williams, and she said it's not well, done in the slams. Uses, yeah, yeah, so she, she, says, she never uses it anyway. So, um, I mean, I think I, uh, my opinion on this has probably evolved some. I think when it first started, I was very against it, partly because I thought it, it sort of like it just sent a weird message to have only the women calling down, uh, usually a male coach. And he was sort of, and it was often unilluminating, you know, it was often like you either wasn't in English or when it wasn't in English, it was very much like, you know, hang in there, you can do it kind of stuff, you know, maybe like, maybe, oh, serve into her body a little bit more, but, but mostly it was like, stay positive. And you're thinking like, really, this is, this is what we get. Um, but, um, now I, I do think that it, there can be some value added. Um, certainly there are instances in which someone comes down and says something really perspective, perceptive and you, you know, I think bringing people into the game is a, is a, is a good thing. Um, and yeah, I, I tend to think it's not as big a deal as I, as, as much as I used to. I sort of think it's a little bit of a red herring, um, when it comes to this kind of gendered thing. Um, and, and it helps that, you know, there are a few more female coaches. So it's less, you know, you have someone like Conchita Martinez or Renee Sebs or someone. So it's less, you know, it's not always this kind of man sitting down by the knee of a young lady. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, I, I'm sort of a little bit agnostic. It sort of seems here like it's here to stay. And so I'm not really kind of, there are other things to worry about in the world. I'm not, I don't get too worked up about that anymore. Uh, so, yeah, tennis leadership, and this is a question where, you know, that ties into it. There's been a lot of talk of tennis leadership across both tours and uh, uh, the Justin Kimmelstab thing and the ATP uh, has so many cups. Uh, how closely do you follow the pulse of uh, that kind of uh, activity? That's Probably not as closely as I should. Um, you know, I, I do read someone like Simon Briggs or someone, you know, reading the kind of or Ben Rothenberg often following the, you know, I, I try to keep abreast of the main storylines and the business side of things, but um, I'm more interested in the action on the court. Um, mm-hmm. But it's certainly, you know, I care about the sport. So it's always um, disheartening when it seems to be shooting itself in the foot yeah. <laughs> so spectacularly. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it is it is disheartening, and and you do you do wish that these people could you know stop a, I guess use a tennis from hitting so many unforced errors. Hmm. Uh, so when I had Carl Bialik on the show, uh, I think last what was last year, yeah, we talked about how tennis is not what it used to be. It's very international, but especially even in New York City, like you know the best American player. If uh, on the men's side, if Sam Query was, I think, the guy at that time who was the rank highest, would walk down in Manhattan or even in Brooklyn, not many would recognize him. Oh, but, for sure. I'm, um, you know, I, I think that that's, that's true. There are more, atten- you know, kind of more demands on the regular person's attention. Um, 
I also the American stars have been less a little less charismatic. I mean, I, I wonder if um, TFO does win the U.S. Open. I mean, I think now if Naomi Osaka walks around Manhattan that people would, do recognize her or Serena Williams, obviously, people recognize her. You know, Roger Federer, people recognize him. Um, you know, it, I don't think... Um, I think some of these players, even though tennis is very international, are sort of adopted. You know, I don't think a lot of Americans think, oh, I can't root for Nadal because he's not an American. Um, I think they know who he is and, and you know, admire him. Um, would it make a difference if he was American? For sure. Um, but I don't think it's as large as, as people sometimes make it out to be. No, I think uh, you're spot on. I mean, I've been going to the Open since 2000, and then that's when uh, Sampras was still playing, and Agassi was there, and Roddick was coming on. But I've seen this, and not me, just everyone has seen this big shift, how you know there's been a drop at the men's side at the top of the game, and uh, I think most countries embrace uh, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic trilogy, and you know this, these guys are like accepted everywhere as international yeah. stars. Uh, so in, in, in your, in, I, I believe you still play a lot of tennis, so I was trying to personalize this question. So... Uh, as a casual fan level, if you have friends who talk about tennis, what's the appeal of tennis? Do people who don't know much about tennis, in your view, still look for that uh, American factor, or it's uh, it's a little beyond that now? Probably the casual fan does, but I think that obviously those big three names um, have a lot of rec- you know name recognition. Um, I don't think that the casual fan. I think that everybody's heard of them at this point um, and are interested in them. Um, I think. Maybe, yeah, I think that generally, like, also a lot of um, the American women are so strong that most of my friends care about, you know, both sides. So I don't think that there's the same sort of, like, a generalist, oh, the American tennis drought. I think a lot of them would say, oh, no, American tennis is really quite well um, if you take across, you know, women and men. Um no, no, I apologize. So. I, I only sing aloud because American women have been world class for a very, very long time. Yeah, so it's true. the other side that has fallen, you know, short. Yeah. And then some of their, you know, Twitter avatars and Twitter personalities and their personal life doesn't help like Ryan Harrison and Jack Sock yeah, and sure. these guys, you know, they yeah. have a shadow um, that <laughs> that's absolutely. looming large. So, yeah, no, I think it's, I, I, I think, you know, I generally think that everyone, um, I think that ten, it, it would be great if, you know, some of these young um, someone like um, Siafo or, or um, you know, sort of seize the mantle in a new way. That would be super exciting. Um, but I don't think my friends sort of like are hungry for it. Um, I think the general fan probably wishes that and assumes that Federer will play forever. <laughs> yeah, I think that, and even general fans. I have uh, friends who are not on Twitter who play tennis all year long, and there are guys who like Federer and Djokovic. And I, I tell them, you are such an anomaly. You go on Twitter, the world is yeah. so divided. You will never find those yeah. guys. You know. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's go back to you know your you know shift the conversation rightfully to your writing. Uh, then you know, uh, and then. Uh, uh, this scenario where the big three are still very relevant, Serena is still, you know, the biggest player, uh, you know, the most powerful tennis player out there. So what does it say for the future of tennis, like from the writer's perspective? These stories are still very relevant, but uh, how is the sport moving forward? Um, well, I think that, you know, again, it's a balance between focusing on, on the stories that we already know and that, that are not um, by any means dead, um, 
and the stories that are, are up and coming. I mean, I think that we've had a pretty vivid example of that in the past couple of tournaments because you do have these like these young Canadian, you know, players who are really exciting along with the sort of like, you know, Federer still there, you know, is there in Miami. Um, so it's sort of like a trans it's very transitional time. And so it's, it's kind of exciting in some ways because you can be writing about these, um, you know, these narratives that are, are sort of well-known and, and continue, but also you sort of like explore new, new stories and, and sort of, um, there's a little bit of unknown. Um, so it's not a bad time to be a writer. Um, sort of never a bad time. There's always a one, there's always a way to kind of look at and yeah. <laughs> find the bright side of something. Sure. This is uh, my pet question to almost everyone who's come at some point. Uh, how easy it is to write about Nick Kyrgios because there's so much going on about this guy. So oh, yeah. <laughs> how, do you, how do you separate the tennis from the man? It's <laughs> uh, a good question. Um, I don't know if you can. I mean, at this point, he's sort of a known unknown. Um, so I don't ever, I mean, I sort of, you sort of give up saying like, oh, and, and I think I actually am a little bit on the anomaly in this, but, um, I've never thought, oh, the, the question is, is he going to be able to sort of quote, get his act together and, and win a slam? Like obviously he has the talent to do that, but I don't think that's really, uh, I think if you actually listen to him and most people don't, most people don't listen to him partly because he's so unbearable sometimes when he talks, but sometimes because, um, you know, they sort of assume that, well, if you're a tennis player, then the, the end all is to win a slam and, and you're sort of lost if you, that's not really your goal. Um, but I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, someone who has like diff a little bit of a different priorities and, um, you know, they want to just figure things out and, and see what works for them. And I've always believed that he, um, I don't think his I don't think he, his life his career is a failure if he doesn't win a slam. I think his career is a failure if he doesn't, you know, consistently <laughs> treat other players um with with you know respect. Um but I do think that he um do, is do, a do thrill to that, watch sometimes and, and I think there's a place for someone like him, even though he's not following the same template of the you know the the spirit of the game. Oh yeah, I, I do. I I mean, I, I'm not like a traditionalist. I don't think there's one way to be or one way to play tennis. I don't think there's one even one way to. I think Monfils is, um, you know, when I, I wrote about him, he held up Monfils as kind of his his role model, and I think there's there's something to be said for not only for Monfils but for also wanting to emulate that career of Monfils, someone who's been incredibly successful, who's, um, you know who really takes a lot of joy in, in hitting a tennis ball. I mean, I think something, you know, curious often doesn't look happy on the court, but like sometimes he just hits a shot and it looks like he's having the most fun in the world. And um, I think that there's something, there's definitely something to be said for that and, and something that should be even celebrated. Um, so I, I do think that there's, I mean, honestly, I think that as long, except in those, you know, moments where I'm curious, and I'm not even talking about the tanking, which we can have a different conversation about, but, you know, except in those moments when curious is sort of like subtweeting people and being a little bit childish about that, um, or very childish. Um, I think that there's absolutely room for him in the sport and room for different approaches. And there's, you know, room for all, all sorts. I mean, one of the great things about tennis in general is that you don't have to be seven feet tall. You don't have to be, you know, a marathon runner. You can be, there are all different kinds of bodies, all different kinds of nationalities, all different kinds of approaches. And, and I think there should be all different kinds of, um, you know, personalities too. I don't think that there needs to be one kind of like, you know, way to do this. Um, 
I think the main thing is, is making sure that, you know, um, so talking, making, talking about personalities, like you just rightfully said, uh, are there certain players in both tours in the WT and ATP who you wish to engage with and maybe write more about them? And if you haven't already written about them, who is on your radar basically? Um, some of these younger players, um, like I'm not even going to try and say his name because I can't speak French, but FAA. <laughs> oh yeah, Felix Ogier. Uh, <laughs> Thank also, you. I learned um, that name of, recently. <laughs> uh, Felix Ogier. Every time I try and say Ogier, I. Uh, oh, I think I'm saying it up. right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I see. Him. Um, I'd like to write about him. Um, he's so much fun to watch. Um, I love to write about um, Sabalenka. Um, especially I think kind of as you know, I think the next U.S. Open could be an exciting time for her. Um, I love to write more about, um, uh, I always like to write about Simone Halep. Um, I love to write more about, um, Sitsipas? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Sitsi, oh yeah, I love to write about him. <laughs> I think there are a bunch of fun, interesting players, you know, who are, um, going to be, going to be, are, are fun to watch off on the court and fun to follow off the court. So, you know, it's, it's not a bad time. Okay, so let's, uh, again, uh, we talked briefly about Naomi Osaka and you've written about her in January and even you've mm-hmm. spoken, I, I guess you did an interview with her. So you don't definitely need a plug-in through our small podcast. You are worldwide known. But someone who hasn't written or, or so who hasn't read your pieces on Osaka, what are your takeaways? You know, you've, you've, you know, you've written about her a few times and you met with her. So just uh, uh, give a small summary. You know, what, what was your takeaway of Osaka, the player and the person? Um, well, I think one thing, you know, when you, when you and meet her, she's very quiet. Um, and, you know, I think that one thing that's there's this sort of like uh, union or kind of overlap, like an unusual kind of um, match between her kind of quietness and shyness, but her resolve, you know, um, and her sort of confidence. So she comes across as sort of like, she's very honest. Um, she's not self-doubting. She's sort of hesitant, but not in a way that is like... Um, lacking in confidence which is interesting um i think what really struck me and i wrote about this in the piece is that she's um she really does seem to care about learning and wanting to grow um and really kind of approaches everything like that and really talks about like growing up you know and and um it's unusual to sort of see someone so openly kind of wrestle with some of these questions and and dreams and hopes and fears and and so it's, it's cool that we get to sort of see that because you know, at the end of the day, it, it is just a sport. And at the same time, it, it is a kind of way that we understand our own selves and our own lives. And, and you know, these are arenas in which we can sort of like really bear down and, and talk about things like pressure and opportunity and fear and hope and, you know, desire. And um, that's why I like writing about tennis. And, and, and she kind of brings a lot of that to the fore. Hmm. And then, yeah, anybody who hasn't read that article, I think I, you know, it's a very insightful article. Just uh, give it a read. It came out on the Vogue. And then Louise has also written more about Naomi during the September pieces for The New Yorker. So let me just ask you, you know, like a lot of pundits have already crowned her as someone who's going to win more than 10 majors, you know, and she's already done two. Uh, she's mm-hmm. world number one. If she mm-hmm. is the real successor of Serena Williams and how both tours have marketed the sport heavily in Asia, you think this is just like the perfect transition for the game to reach, you know, newer heights because uh, uh, sure. Asian swing I mean, is pretty it's big. It's a marketing dream. Um, <laughs> you know, I think she's really appealing and really cross-cultural and um, she can reach so many different art 
markets and there's a reason she's going to be the most highly paid female athlete in the world um very soon if not already so she's a new you know deal with nike i'm sure that's padding the uh bank account but um i think that she's really exciting um and i don't i do think she's a sort of a high variance player i don't think she's going to win week in and week out at this point you know it's impossible to see what happens in the future but i think she'll have some bad losses but um i also think that she's you know, she, she is real, you know, you don't, you don't win two in a row without, without kind of, um, establishing that fact. All right. So let's take this conversation a little further and, uh, bring Rohit Bridnath, who we both know. <laughs> I'm a big fan of him. And he said on the Carl Bialik podcast when he was there last year, that if someone's going to write a book in Federer, it should be Louisa Thomas. I know. Oh, I'm throwing... that's so nice. <laughs> so are there any plans to ever write a book on any tennis player besides uh, Federer? I no would Federer? love to, um, uh, the question is always with writing any kind of book or a longer piece is what kind of access can you get? And I don't know if uh, Fetter wants me to, you know, uh, wants to bear his heart and soul to me. Um, but if he does, by all means, I would love to do that. Um, I think it'd be really kind of cool and exciting um, and interesting. So, um, yeah, I, I know you, you haven't know. <laughs> done it, but I mean, uh, what kind of work would be writing a tennis book? And especially with your style, how much of uh, research and analysis will go in before the product comes out? And of course, if it's about a player, you'll need time from the player. So what's the timeline for something like that? Have you ever entertained that? Uh, I have never entertained that. If the right opportunity came up, um, I would absolutely entertain it, but I've never uh, looked for it. And I think it would have to be the perfect um opportunity because um you know i mean it's a fine balance you want to get access but you don't want to you want to write something that's like timeless right it's okay if an article is only relevant for a month or two or a day or two but you want a book to sort of sing for a long time um so you do want to i think it would be totally contextual it's like who's the player um what are you bringing to it what why are you doing it um yeah. And um, yeah, it would be an interesting thing to, to contemplate. But um, again, it would have to be the right situation. So, okay, Louisa, I think uh, you have you know your daughter to attend to. We are. I still, apologize. No, no, that's totally fine. I mean, uh, we are very glad that we did this, and hopefully, uh, we'll have you again on the show. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll produce another show next week. This is Sakib signing off. Bye for now. Okay, thank you.